First of all, I, it's wonderful to be here uh, with my good friend, Monsignor King, whom I call Dr. King, because we studied together in Rome. That's what our bishops thought we did, that we studied. Both receiving our doctorates in the early part of this century. Now, I'm from Connecticut, and Bill has visited a couple of times, and I have not yet been here. There's a little difference in the way we travel, though. I did a baptism about 1.30, Owen Andrew, beautiful little boy, and then drove four hours to be with you. When Bill comes to see me, he flies in his own plane or someone else's plane. That shows you the difference in the two of us. It's an honor to be here for your 40 hours. That 40 hours aspect always bothered me as a kid because I didn't really know what it meant. It's a lot more than 40 hours, the math doesn't seem to work. And then I remembered that the math also doesn't work when we said that Jesus was three days in the tomb. I never understood that because traditionally the hour of his death is 3 p.m. on Good Friday and so 3 p.m. to Holy Saturday is 24 hours and another 12 gets you to 3 a.m. on Sunday and another 4 gets you to dawn. So those are the 40 hours. The 40 hours that he was in the tomb, that he was still, that the word made flesh was silent. It's an ancient mystery of the church, what happened in that time when God was absent. In the Apostles' Creed, we say he descended into hell. There's a wonderful story in the Easter stories that he unleashed all those who were waiting to go to heaven, the patriarchs. You'll remember there's a gospel account or in the Acts that the patriarchs were seen almost stunned walking around Jerusalem all out of their tombs by some. But you and I are together for three nights. And so I thought we would look at that man in the tomb with us for those 40 hours in three ways. Tonight, Jesus of Nazareth, God made man, the human being who walked our dust and died our death. And tomorrow, Jesus Christ, the church. Jesus Christ in the Pauline sense of the body, the corpus, Christi, in the sense of him as the head and all of us as parts of that body. And finally then, on Tuesday night, Jesus Christ in the Eucharist, in the Blessed Sacrament.
the man, the church, and the energy and nourishment that man gives the church through his own body. In this text from Peter's first letter, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who in his great mercy gave us a new birth. And then, in the Greek, by the way, he uses the word birth two more times. Here it is. To an inheritance that is imperishable, in the notion of your birthright, of your lineage, of your ancestry, of your inheritance, as we know it so well legally. The notion of the use of the word birth. Tonight, birth in the natural way, Christ the man. But we know that will take on another meaning in the notion of reborn, of a second birth. Jesus' birth was not the beginning of the story in Luke, if you remember. Yes, Mary and the angel met in Nazareth, the angel had an appointment before Mary. And it's something that tells us about the reason for Jesus' human birth. Gabriel first appears to Zechariah in the holiest place in all of Judaism, in the Temple Mount, in the place that held the Ark of the Covenant, the Torah, the tablets given to Moses himself by God, on Mount Sinai, the holiest place. And Zechariah was from the priestly tribe, the Old Testament priestly tribe, coming down from Moses and Aaron, a office that was passed as a birthright from father to son and father to son and father to son, the house of Levi, not the genes, but the priests. In fact, the Jewish word, Cohen, a last name many Jews have, means priest in Hebrew. And Science Magazine, just a few years ago, did a DNA test of people with the last name Cohen. And guess what? Many of them were, of course, blood-related, for it was a tribe of Israel. And that angel, we recall, appeared to Zechariah in the holiest place, and told him he, like Mary, would have a son. But he wanted nothing to do with it, or so we're kind of told. I've always thought he got a bad play here. He was confused. Mary would be confused in Nazareth. But it is a metaphor for the fact that the Old Testament was coming to an end. Of course, it would be his son, John the Baptist, who would announce his cousin's arrival. But that word that was the whisper in the Garden of Eden that had been spoken through the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, that word that had been given to Moses on Sinai, that word that was in Elijah and Ezekiel and Daniel, that word was made mute that day because the word was now going to be made flesh in the tabernacle of the womb of Our Lady as she said yes to giving birth to him and through him to the church. 
And you take that human life, that real life, and do an arc to his death. St. Luke gets this right again in the Christmas account. Remember these words? He was wrapped in swaddling clothes, laid in a manger, for there was no room for him in the inn. If you fast forward to his death, Luke's words, he was taken down and put in linen in a shroud and placed in a tomb that had never been used. It's the same phrasing in the original Greek, the same tricolon, the same kind of lapidarian elegance, the beginning and what appears to be the end. And it has the same meaning for us that we'll see on Monday night. For he was put in a manger, mange, something Bill and I did often in Rome, mange, eat together, right? It was a trough for animals. That's what it was. It sounds sweet and elegant today because it's Christmas, but it wasn't. It wasn't as bad as the cross, though, where again he was, his body, food for us. And think who was with him there from the beginning, Our Lady, who held him in Bethlehem and held him in that magnificent Pieta Michelangelo aspect at the cross where he gave birth and she gave birth to the church. Our psalm tonight said, you are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. But he wasn't. The Old Testament priesthood came to an end there with Zechariah. Jesus wasn't a priest, and sometimes we make the mistake because he was a rabbi and a good teacher. We think he would. No, this is not what was handed down to him by his father. His father was not of that element. His father was, his stepfather was a carpenter. He wasn't of the temple class. He didn't have the bloodline of John the Baptist. He was just a carpenter. In fact, he's never called a priest anywhere in the New Testament in the Gospels because he wasn't one. It was a different idea. His idea of priesthood comes to us from the letter to the Hebrews. And what the author of the letter to the Hebrews does is use the very psalm we just sang, you are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek in Psalm 110 to go all the way back to the only other time in Scripture that Melchizedek is mentioned. And that is in Genesis, when he and Abraham bump into each other. Melchizedek is a priest, a pagan priest, a Gentile priest. You might call him a witch doctor from Salem. That's the truth. By the way, his name, interestingly, means house of bread, house of peace, as does the word Bethlehem. And he was a priest of whatever God he was. But he blessed Abraham after Abraham had won a battle. And when Abraham received Melchizedek's blessing, remember, Abraham gave him a tenth of everything he owned. Now those are sweet words to a pastor's ears.
a tenth of everything. It's the source, the origin of tithing. Now, what happens across the ages is that the author of Hebrews, in the later part of the first century, when many Jews who had become Christians and were upset with the very priestly caste, the Sanhedrin, the Pharisees, who had put Jesus to death, had a rather bad negative view of priest. And that happens in different ages for different and sometimes good reasons. And so the author of Hebrews established him not as a priest of the Jews of the Old Covenant, but a priest from the beginning of the man who had blessed Abraham. Because in the Jewish sense, the one who does the blessing is superior. Jesus and Melchizedek were both kings and priests in the cosmic sense. They both offered bread and wine to God and had their priesthood directly from God and not from the Jews. A professor in Rome, Alaric Cody, said once, Jesus was radically a priest from the instant of the incarnation. Before he ascended into heaven, the word made flesh was enjoying divine filiation in eternity, and the human nature enjoyed its priestly character. But the human nature did not enjoy yet fully either the title or the saving privileges, either of that sonship or of its priesthood, because it was not yet on the celestial level, which is also the eternal level. And that's where the gospel comes in tonight. On the real earthly level, Jesus the man sanctified all of life, everything he did, from eating together to being with people to make it all part of the daily liturgy of life as priestly. The notion of his birth and Peter's word has again another arc from the beginning and at his death. There is a tradition that at Jesus' birth that the angels were silent for a half hour before the incarnation. It's a lovely thought. As the Italians like to say, if it isn't true, it should be. And the notion was this, that that silence, that wonder and awe, in a way we see it in Revelation 8, I think, is that what's happening today, the lull before the storm, the eye of the hurricane, when all seems quiet and calm, because the angels knew a revolution was in store. And the other time we have that thought are those 40 hours when he was still, when he was silent in the tomb. The beginning and the end, or what seemed like the end, but would be, of course, a new beginning. He would not be still. He would cry out, Alleluia. In those notion of silence is something that we can take to heart in these 40 hours that we celebrate 
as we adore in silence and stillness the cosmic God who was man. C.S. T.S. Eliot, rather, in one of his great poems, using what we know from science, said that the world began not with a bang, but with a whimper, with the cry of that God-made man in Bethlehem. Silence, a baby's cry, and then that most perfect image, really, of love. You can see it sometimes in church if you look, right? In the midst of all the noise of our world, there's nothing more beautiful than when a little child is asleep in his mother's arms, completely at ease and comfortable in the midst of chaos. The image of mother and son. Mother and son at birth in Bethlehem. Mother and son at birth at the foot of the cross. Silence now in these 40 hours. But soon, the shroud will be thrown away and folded up neatly. The stone will roll back, and he will be in the upper room tomorrow night, breathing on his apostles. The very breath of life of that body, the very breath of Genesis, the very spirit that animates us still.